Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so before we started recording the show, my wife said, Robert, who do you have on the show today? And I said, Jasmine, because we don't have a guest. You are you are the only person I'm talking to this week. Yeah. So. This is our first one without a guest and... A long time, I think. Yeah, uh, it's Except less for maybe like our election results. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say this is probably going to be a shorter show, um, which is nice for me. That's less audio to add it, but uh, you know, it is maybe you know sad for the people who want more my old Kentucky co- podcast content, maybe. Uh, but you know, we do have lots to talk about this week. I'm going to be talking about Jonathan Shell. Uh, we're kind of going through these candidates as they are filing for office, running for different things in 2023. And Jonathan Shell is a Republican candidate for agriculture commissioner. So we're going to be talking about him a little bit. And then Jasmine is going to be talking to us about the story that's coming out of Bowling Green last week and through the weekend of very, I don't know, uh, interesting, strange story about Emmett Till, who uh, was, I mean, a very key figure. Uh, his death was a key moment in the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. Um, and some... Uh, connections to Bowling Green led to some some very, you know, dangerous and strange situations going on in Bowling Green. So Jasmine's going to be talking about that a little bit, kind of what it all means. It's obviously it's a, it's it's a tough story to kind of like understand or get your head around. So Jasmine, you're going to be walking us through that. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get started by talking about Jonathan Shell. Okay, so Jonathan Shell, uh, yeah, we, we were we were doing this series about all the people who are running for office in 2023, and Jonathan Shell, he's filed to run for office as agriculture for agriculture commissioner as a Republican. So you know, like a lot of the people running for office next year, he's quite young; he's just 35, and actually already has quite a record um, in in uh, his career for public service already. So Jasmine, what, what are you what are you coming to this conversation knowing about Jonathan Shell already? Okay, I remember Jonathan Shell did he beat in an incumbent for a house seat? No, he took over an he, open seat, but yeah. Okay, he, but then he lost his seat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. And that's that's really what I know, I know he had like um, McConnell connections mm-hmm. too. That he was maybe like a McConnell prodigy. You are a hundred percent correct on everything that you've said, but there's a lot more to the story, so we'll be getting into all of that. So, Jonathan Shell is from Garrard County, which I don't know how to pronounce. I never have. People have told me many times. People from there, people from around that area, they say this is how to say it. I never have been able to get it. How about you, Jasmine? What do you say? Um, I say Garrard County. Garrard County. That's also kind of how I say it. It's, it's you know, it's like Louisville. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta know. I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyways, Garrard County is is just two counties south of Lexington. It's not that far outside of Lexington, but it's not really on an interstate or anything. It's not really a direct way to get there. It's a rural. It's an agricultural county. There's a, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on there, um, and it's kind of on the way to Appalachia. Um, it, it's not quite there though. It's still very ag- agrarian in terms of their economy. Um, so Jonathan Shell, when he was, um, younger, when he, in 2012, um, he planned to run for city council in Lancaster, which is the, the, the county seat there in Garrett County. But he was convinced by his wife and maybe some other folks too, that he should instead run for state house. And he, he was convinced to do that because longtime 
State Representative Lonnie Napier, who'd been in that seat since the 80s, had decided to hang it up. He was retiring. He was like a long, a long-suffering Republican from this area of the state, um, who's decided to 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 leave the the state legislature, uh, and there was an open seat. So Jonathan Shell was convinced instead of running for city council in uh, in in Lancaster to run for state house. And he won. He won that seat in 2012 and became the youngest member of the House at 26 years old. Um, So, you know, I don't know if he's the youngest person ever. Rachel Rourke's may actually be younger than him now. Um, but but that's very young to be serving in the legislature. There's a lot written about that. That there's a really good uh, kind of article uh, profile of him written by Daniel DeRochers, who was a longtime writer for the Herald Leader uh, back several years ago. Now writing about him as like this millennial legislator, which was very unusual at the time. Of course, there's a lot more millennial legislators here as we sit a decade later. So, you know, uh, that, that was right on the show how he ended up in the legislature. Um, I will say that Republicans in this time were in the minority in the House, and they were very frustrated by that. Uh, they, you know, had been able to win statewide for, you know, I guess 30 years or more at that point in time. Uh, and, and, you know, they had just picked up the, the governorship. Matt Bevin had just become the governor, won by nine points. But they had yet to take over the House, and, and there was actually uh, like a push after Matt Bevin became governor to try to get some Democrats to take some, you know, nicer jobs inside of the administration and then win some special elections. That was like right when the show first kind of started. Jasmine, remember that, uh, which and and Democrats were successful in being able to hold on to all of those seats. So, um, you know, Republicans are very frustrated. And one of the things that they kind of honed in on was they hadn't been that successful at recruiting candidates. And I will say it's a lot different for them, uh, for Republicans in 2012 than it is for Democrats now. So Democrats now, um, they, they're also having difficulties recruiting seats. But they're, the, if you look out on the landscape, it's not like Democrats are, are going to win a lot of these seats where they're not able to recruit. These are deeply Republican seats. On the Republican side, you're seeing places where people like President Bush, Mitch McConnell, Jim Bunning, Rand Paul, everybody up and down the federal office, every member of Congress – Anytime that there was like a federal election where a Republican was running, they were cleaning up, you know, getting like 65, 70 percent of the votes. But for whatever reason, they just couldn't get anybody to run for state house or mostly state house against the longtime incumbent Democrat in those seats. And and so they were very frustrated by that. And so Mitch McConnell kind of swooped in there and was like, somebody needs to help us. Somebody needs to take leadership of recruiting these candidates to do this. And this is where I think Mitch McConnell and Jonathan Shell kind of formed their initial bond. Mitch McConnell stepped up. Jonathan Shell stepped up and took took on that job. He said, I will recruit candidates in the 2015-2016 cycle. I will lead the House Republican Campaign Caucus, and I will get us some folks running in these seats. And, and they did. And they did. They recruited a lot of folks to run. I would say most of the people were, uh, you know, there were some crazy folks that won, uh, certainly. But there were a lot of good candidates, strong candidates, well-connected in the community. They got them to flip parties a lot, a lot of the time where, you know, move from Democrat to Republican just because they were like, this is more in line with what you believe or whatever. And swept them into the majority. In the 2015-2016 cycle, they ended up with 64 seats. That was like a double-digit increase. In that uh, article I wrote, uh, I mentioned earlier by Daniel DeRochers, he was like, at most, I thought we would get like 54 to 57, and they ended up with 64 seats, uh, which, 
you know that that is that is a that is a success for Jonathan Shell um, and and the recruitment efforts. Of course, Donald Trump had a lot to do with that. There were a lot of other kind of factors that were moving their way around in, in that milieu about why mm-hmm. Republicans were very successful. But uh, you know, as I have said many many times, you you can't win unless you run. Um, and ha- being being there, uh, have, having the people ready to go and ready to run in the time when that opportunity popped up. Um, you know, netted them probably five or six more seats. You know, if they had not had as good a recruiting push, they might have only had like 55, 56 seats. Instead, they were able to walk away with 64 in that in that time. So, um, you know, he was in charge of recruiting and was rewarded with a spot in GOP leadership in the 2017-18 legislature as the House caucus chair. Um, and, you know, he's young at this point. I think he's, you know, you know, in his early 30s at that point, maybe even his late 20s with a leadership spot in the in the legislature. People are like, you know, this guy's going far. He's got a huge future in front of him. There's no way there's nothing stopping this guy. Now he's in a safe seat. He's, you know, uh, in with Mitch McConnell. He's in with the leadership. People love this guy. He's going far. And then in 2018, a lot of stuff kind of came back to earth for Jonathan Shell. He had been a major force uh, for the GOP in the leadership, uh, in the legislature, in the 2017 and 18 cycles were very, very dramatic. Uh, there were huge strikes, movements, teacher movement. Uh, you know, it's it's wild to think back on those times and the amount of people that were just showing up at the at the Capitol protesting, wearing their red shirts. Uh, you know, the the KEA was out in force. The you, you know 120 United folks were out in force. They were, I mean, huge demonstrations that were just furious with the the Republican leadership because of their push into charter schools. Um, you know, lack of funding for educational. Um, educational funding for for k-12 education uh, a lot of things that they had kind of wanted to change that they were very frustrated by jasmine uh what are your <laughs> am i am i am i characterizing this correctly uh what are your memories about that time and in, in, in that and kind of how folks were talking about the gop leadership during those sessions yeah i felt like those sessions were kind of dominated by education and the teacher strikes and a lot of that was you know, a lot of people were really upset with Bevin, but they were upset with the legislature, too. And there was an opportunity for pro-public education Republicans. And that's, yeah, at that's, that time. that's exactly what happened. So in the 2018 primary, um, our Travis Brenda ran against uh, Jonathan Shell as a Republican, and he, he won. Uh, he... He won by fewer than 150 votes. That's what our Travis Brenda defeated Jonathan Shell by uh, in the Republican primary. This is a very Republican seat, so uh, I think there was some nominal opposition from the Democratic Party in that. That I think they got like 25, 30 percent. Uh, but our Travis Brenda went into the the legislature. There's a write up of him in the New York Times. Um, you know, he, and then he was kind of riding high. like, "Whoa, wow!" They know mm-hmm. this pro pro education Republican, and you know, he he voted quite a bit with Democrats uh, on a lot of ed- economic issues. Uh, and then, you know, our Travis Brenda turned right around and lost a 2020 yeah. primary <laughs> by 30 which is, votes. Which is now really crazy to think about that Jonathan Shell, you know, like a a rising star incumbent was beat by a more like moderate or more Democratic Republican and then two years later lost to a more conservative one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there was a lot like the the Republican Party was very frustrated with that kind of very frustrated with the fact that Jonathan Shell had lost kind of frustrated with the way that Travis Brenda was bucking leadership in quite a few ways. And I think they 
they worked pretty tough, worked pretty hard to, to recruit, find a good candidate, and make sure he had the funding he needed to to beat uh, Travis Brenda. So you know that that's what happened. But those were both very very close elections. I mean, none of I mean combined, there were fewer than two hundred votes that separated both elections. It's pretty mm-hmm. crazy. So, you know, that that's kind of where Jonathan Shell was sitting in 2018. He was riding high. He was really excited. And then he he lost. He lost his seat. Um, and so he's, you know, that's very disappointing for him. But Mitch McConnell, remembering those days back in 2015 and 16 when Jonathan Shell stepped up, led the caucus, recruited all those folks, he still, he still felt like Jonathan Shell had a big future in politics and made him the chairman of his 2020 re-election campaign. That was, like, the next thing he took on. Um I think that this was like in the time when like he he, he took this meeting in uh like Germantown uh, at I think it was like the the Italian restaurant Sereno there in Germantown and that was when uh, they were heckled uh, which made the news quite a bit I think it was also the time when Elaine Chow like got out and yelled back at the the people that was like the meeting when John on the show was offered the job if you remember that I, oh I don't really remember that one I remember he got. M- Mitch McConnell got heckled at the Bristol that, in the Highlands one time. Th- there was a lot of that going on. I can't keep them all straight. Yeah, no, the one where Elaine Chow got out of the, the car and yelled at him, that was, that was a little, that one went a little viral. I don't remember that. Again, Jonathan Shell was, was sitting right there. Um, anyways, uh, you know, this job allowed Jonathan Shell an opportunity to work on a statewide campaign to get him exposed to a lot of the leadership across the state and everything. And of course, you know, Mitch McConnell defeated Amy McGrath very handily. Uh, and, and Jonathan Shell can say, you know, we won that race even though we were outspent by 20 25 million dollars which is technically true but i don't think anybody thought it was going to go any different than that uh maybe yeah. some, some folks from like philadelphia or something maybe uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah some people outside of kentucky had, high- had hope for a little while i think yeah yeah um and and you know that's kind of that's kind of how it went for him so he's he's now sitting in this position where you know he's out of the legislature but he's had a, additional exposure to all all these folks out in the state um, and he's he's developed a lot of allies across the Republican spectrum in Kentucky. And so now he's decided to throw his hat in the ring as Kentucky's next agriculture commissioner. So unlike most other state offices in Kentucky, which, you know, uh, were very Democratic for a long time, maybe with one or two people as Republicans serving in them. You know, Trey Grayson was the secretary of state for a couple of terms. Uh, but most of them have been very heavily Democratic going into, you know, the Trump wave, the Bevin wave, perhaps preceding the Trump wave. And are now, you know, leaning Republicans, certainly. The Agriculture Commissioner's job has been very solidly Republican going back to the 1990s. Uh, it spawned several successful candidates for higher office, such as Ryan Quarles and Jamie Comer. Uh, you know, Richie Farmer served two terms and was a lieutenant governor yeah. cam- uh, a candidate, uh, you know, lost that race. But, uh, you know, there there are uh, a lot of people who have been Republican agriculture commissioners who have gone on to bigger and better things. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the office that Jonathan Chell's looking to get into. And, you know, I think he's he's a good fit for agriculture commissioner. He's an honest to God farmer. You know, he, he he's uh, from Garrett County, very agrarian, very agricultural based county. And his family operates a farm. Uh, according to the website, uh, according to his website, they grow corn, pumpkin, and raise cattle. And I was able to confirm that from that, the farm's actual website where they're actually selling products. They also sell uh, bedding plants, hanging baskets, and vegetables, which are kind of more like 
equipment that you need if you operate a farm. So, you know, that that's kind of his family. I mean, he he under I mean, he has some background in the agricultural industry, which does not always I mean, Richie Farmer, uh, his name was Farmer, but I don't think he had a lot of education <laughs> as a farmer. Uh, I don't you know, I, I, Ryan Quarles does operate a farm, you know, his family has been farmers for a long time. I don't really know much about Jamie Comer's background. Um, whether he was an actual farmer or not down there in Western Kentucky. So that's that's Jonathan Shell's background, how he's running for, for agriculture commissioner. So Rocky Atkins and Sierra Inlow have both been noted as potential Democratic candidates for agriculture commissioner. We, You know who Rocky Atkins is. Um, if you don't, he was a former gubernatorial candidate in 2019. He was the Democratic leader in the House prior to that. He was one of Greg Stumbo's main lieutenants for a long time before that. Um, he... It was working in the Bashir administration right now and has been touted as a potential Democratic candidate for agriculture commissioner. Sierra Inlow, you may not know. Um, we'll get into her maybe if uh, she decides to actually throw her hat in the ring. Um, I've known – we actually were classmates together at UK, so I know her from that. But uh, she is an, uh, She worked on uh, – Jack Conway's gubernatorial campaign is one of his main kind of staffers when he was running for for uh, governor back in 2015. That was, of course, the the doomed race against Matt Bevan. So that that's kind of her her major political experience. But she has done a lot of work in and around government um, as like a policy advisor. And uh, her her roots are in Larue County in Western Kentucky, I believe. Even though she spent a lot of time in Louisville, Lexington, and Frankfort doing different sorts of things. Um, so. That is, uh, those are the Democrats who've kind of been talked about for this race already so far. I think both are potentially good candidates and either would represent, I think, I think either one of them, Sierra Enlow or Rocky Atkins, would represent Democrats' most serious challenge for this office in decades. So not only has this office been dominated by Republicans, Democrats haven't really even, like, run serious candidates in this race for a very long time. Um, I forget the name of the guy who ran last time. I felt like he was, like, the Democrats' most serious challenge at that point. Um, Robert Haley Conway. There you go, Robert Haley Conway. Uh, he he actually was like able to talk about issues in a serious way, talk yeah. about the importance of the Democratic Party. Um, I felt like understood what he was doing, but he was still just kind of a guy who decided to step up and do it. You know, he wasn't like somebody with roots, knew how to raise money, um, political experience, or anything like that. And Rocky Atkins and Sierra Inlow both both have that. So I think they, they represent pretty serious challenges for this office, which is something that Democrats haven't done recently. However, you know, it is a very challenging Demo- uh, environment for Democrats this year. Um, at, you know, as time goes on, it just gets worse and worse for Democrats. So it's going to be tough no matter what. But I do think, you know, it there is there is a potential for Andy Beshear to have coattails and having a serious candidate running in one of these races is the best way to take advantage of that if it actually happens. Jonathan Shell is facing some uh, primary opposition from Richard Heath, who is a state representative in Western Kentucky. Um, you know, he he ran last time as well, but I think most of the uh, most of the Republicans that you know I listen to or speak to seem to think that jo- Jonathan Shell is is the favorite going into this race. Uh, anyways, that is that is who he is. So, Jasmine, based on what you knew at the beginning of this conversation, do you feel like you know more now? Yeah, definitely, because uh, he was in the legislature when we started this, but he was defeated not long after. So um, I didn't really know as much about his history, and I also didn't know that he ran the McConnell campaign in 2020 either. I must not have been paying super close attention to 
the Republican side of that. A lot going on there in 2020. So you know, <laughs> yeah, there was. <laughs> you're you're forgiven for 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 missing that that detail. All right, enough about Jonathan Shell, Jasmine. Tell us what we need to know about this protest for Emmett Till in Bowling Green. Okay, so a little bit of of background here. So back in August, Carolyn Bryant was found to be living in Kentucky with her son after not having been seen publicly since 2004. So Carolyn Bryant was the wife of Roy Bryant, who was tried with his brother and acquitted of Emmett Till's murder um, in 1955. So she kind of played a role, though. Carolyn Bryant was allegedly offended by 14-year-old Emmett Till in her family's grocery store. And the account of what actually happened, what she says happened, is disputed. At trial, she testified that Till grabbed her by the wrist, asked her for a date, said he'd been with white women before, and that his friends had to come drag him out of the store. Um, But this was disputed by other witnesses that were there, friends of his that were present at the scene, um, that that didn't actually happen. There's also been... A writer who wrote about this that said she recanted later, but it wasn't recorded as part of an interview he did with her. So no one really knows exactly what happened, but she told people what happened in the store. And then a couple days later, her husband and his brother kidnapped Emmett Till and beat and mutilated him before shooting him and leaving his body in a river. And and this case really became... um a spark for the civil rights movement because Emmett Till's mother wanted to have an open casket um, for his funeral to show like what these white men did to him. Yeah. So that's the background. Yeah. Emmett Till and the story of Emmett Till is, I mean, it is one of the turning points in American history. It really marks one of the, the beginnings of, uh, the civil rights struggles of of the '60s. I, it happened in the '50s, but it happened. It was contemporaneous with like the Rosa Parks. Um, you know, when 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 she was uh, when when she was doing her direct action, a lot of the sit-ins that were going on uh, at at lunch counters. All of this was kind of like the 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 very beginnings of of the the move, movement starting to make progress. And, and this was really a, a huge spark towards that, seeing the amount of violence that was going on in the South for, for against this man who had really done nothing um, and, and was murdered. A child. Yes. He was not a child. even a man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 14, 14 years year old. old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Carolyn Bryant was the wife of Roy, who was acquitted of the murder. And she later was divorced from him. And, has like lived a very private life and hasn't been seen since 2004 publicly. And so she was spotted in Bowling Green in August. And then, but about a month before that, um, an unserved warrant for her arrest was found in a Mississippi courthouse. And so charges of kidnapping and manslaughter were presented to a grand jury in Mississippi shortly after that, but they declined to indict her. You know, charges were presented, but the prosecutor typically decides or recommends what they want a grand jury to do. And I'm not sure how serious of a case they presented. But she's also 88 years old now. 
Yeah, it's a very complicated story for sure because she is so old. The charges are so old, but it is like one of the the turning points in American history. And you can look to the example of like you know Nazi sympathizers in Germany, where they are try they try people when they discover them uh, in in situations not too far apart from these uh, when they're in their eighties and nineties as well. So you right, know, it is it is kind of a. Uh, you know, it's a, it's it's an it's a it's a difficult difficult subject for sure about uh, you know what do you do because this is such a horrendous action. You know how much responsibility do, does she carry? Uh, you know, having made these false claims, not you know you know being there for the murder, but perhaps being the person who, uh, if she had acted differently, uh, you know, you present it to a grand jury, I guess, and you see you see what happens if you're the prosecutor, and uh, I'm not too surprised that a grand jury there in Mississippi decided not, not to indict. Yeah, I think, you know, some people may believe that you shouldn't prosecute anyone that's that old, but at the same time, like, our country does that all the time. You know, you, you mentioned with um, Nazi sympathizers, but also with like cold cases where they find the killer because of DNA or someone who sexually assaulted someone years later and they're well into their 70s or 80s. Those yeah. people get prosecuted too. Um, so they're maybe, you know, or inconsistencies. And, and I think that's something that protesters in Bowling Green were concerned with. So that's what we're getting to. So on Saturday, um, so after it was discovered that she was living in an apartment in Bowling Green, protesters planned a rally to demand justice for Emmett Till. um, And that took place on Saturday. About two dozen protesters were there and they um, kind of walked to different parts of Bowling Green, they were outside her apartment and kind of marched through like a shopping center. Um, And the rally was organized by a civil rights group named True Healing Under God and was also attended by groups including the Black Panthers and the Lion of Judah Armed Forces, along with other people, um, including a cousin of Emmett Till's. Um, they, They basically came to protest at the last known location of Carolyn Bryant and asked that police serve the arrest warrant that was found. And, um, you know, they made the arguments that we prosecuted other people in their old age. One of them brought up that we prosecuted Bill Cosby. Um, and, and they're just asking for, you know, the same justice for Emmett Till. Police actually made an arrest at the protest for someone who they allege had an outstanding warrant Um, which seems a little ironic given that they were protesting an unserved warrant. (laughs) Um, I think that's kind of unfortunate that, you know, no one was doing anything illegal and police must had to have run checks on the protesters. Yeah. And served a warrant. Yeah. Someone, I don't know what it was for or anything, but. Yeah, I will say that this is a situation that doesn't happen every day in any place. And so I will, you know, the the police in, in Bowling Green were definitely facing a different type of situation. But you think if facing this kind of unique situation, they would think, well, what might our actions uh, look like? 
uh, and and noting that they are asking for somebody to be arrested on an unserved warrant and then arresting someone on an unserved warrant who is different than the person they're asking to, you know, yeah. looks looks yeah doesn't look great. So you know, it's a little too bad they didn't think that all the way through. That's for sure. Yeah, um, but I guess the reason a reason this became such a big story was the day of the protest, really early in the morning at like three a.m. Um, the Warren County Sheriff's Department said that there had been a threat made towards the protesters. And the specific threat was um, to shoot protesters or anyone who supported them. And so the day that this rally was scheduled, there was supposed to be a Christmas parade and a mistletoe market in Bowling Green. And both of those were canceled due to this threat that was made towards protesters. Um, I, I haven't heard anything about, you know, the validity of the threat, who it came from, anything like that. But they wanted to take precaution, um, you know, on the chance that it was a credible threat. And so um, I think that's also a reason that there was a decent amount of police presence at the rally. Um, I will say I saw a video from it and they weren't like in riot gear or anything. Um so that's that's a positive. Yeah, it seems like that there were only two dozen or so folks that yeah, were there. Yeah, it was it was pretty small. Two dozen at its peak is what was reported by the Courier Journal. Yeah, so you know, it would have looked even more ridiculous if they'd have shown up in riot gear. Although you know that sort of thing. I mean, I remember when they had those. Uh, I guess the the time that I remember it happening was uh, the abolish ice protests, which were probably like 25, 30 people. And most of them were like, I don't know, people in shorts and T-shirts and then like huge dump trucks and like police in riot gear showing up to, to stuff yeah. like that. Like, So it's not unheard of in the state of Kentucky, um, but it, it, it does look quite silly when it does happen. So, you know, um, you know, it just seems it seems like this is just it's just a very strange situation that we found this woman here in Kentucky. You know, uh, at this at this moment in our history, uh, you know, it, I got you know, people are allowed to do this kind of protest. This is what. You know that's their First Amendment right. They're Americans. They can, they can ask for stuff uh, that that they think needs to happen. And I feel like it sounds like they were doing it in a totally appropriate and, uh, I mean, uh, you yeah, know, uh, totally appropriate and in uh, above board way. Uh, and, and you know, then they were faced with these crazy threats from um, people from uh, you know that were you know threatening violence towards them, and that just kind of like ruined everybody's weekend in Bowling Green. So, you know, that's very unfortunate that you know, that, that, that happened there that, you know, their poor, their market got canceled. Uh, yeah. No, mistletoe market sounds great. Yeah. That sounds like, you know, something I would want to take my kid to, but you know, you gotta be safe, uh, here in, in, you know, with, with these threats like this, especially with all of the mass shootings that have happened in the past several years, but yeah. And I definitely appreciate law enforcement taking that threat seriously. Yeah. You have to. I mean, yeah. I mean, you don't have to. There, there are a lot of times it isn't taken seriously, which is, leads to unfortunate situations. Yeah, uh, it's a tough, tough call to make. But yeah, um, you know, it's just too bad that that people expressing their First Amendment rights in this way, doing nothing violent, being a small group of protesters asking for justice for you know, it's one of the most horrific acts in American history, um, are faced with with this level of of violence and, and disruption to their community. So, you know, uh, yeah, this is just a. A very strange story uh, to me, but I mean, I do understand it a lot more now. 
Uh, so thank you for that. Anything else you want to say about it? No, I think that's it. The the only other thing, and I wasn't able to confirm this by like a news site, but I read somewhere that Caroline Bryant was also in hospice care mm. too. And so, you know, I think it is a difficult thing about what should happen to her being near 90 years old and in hospice care. Yeah. But at the same time, there never was any kind of justice for Emmett Till. You know, the, the people who committed the murder were acquitted and she never faced anything. seems like there was a warrant that was never served. And so, yeah, they, they have every right to continue to demand for justice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's a much more direct situation if you demand justice for the people that were pulling the trigger, that were the people that were um, committing. And the they ac- passed away in like the 90s. And they were acquitted. So there's nothing you can really do about it at that point. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you got appeals and stuff. And, and, you know, there's there's movies and books and everything written about this situation and all the, the stuff that had happened. But, you know, she's the only person I think that, you know, there's an open, you know, case about um but yeah, how much responsibility should she should she bear for this? Uh, does it matter how much time has passed? These are difficult questions. Um, but you know, uh, w- these people are calling us to to think about them, and that's what we're here trying to do. So, yeah, and you know, Bowling Green is is where where it's all going down for for this situation. So, anyways, I don't know if anything else is going to happen about that, but we'll keep our eyes peeled uh, to see if it does. And you know, I know the TV station down there and and Bowling Green will. Um, flash the crawl that the the things are happening that was uh i think where i first saw it was people getting upset that the uh, mistletoe market was being canceled and it was going across the bottom of the screen during the kentucky basketball game uh Mm -hmm. which is causing people to get get frustrated but uh anyways uh that that is the show for this week uh not no quick hits no guests or anything shorter show this week but thank you guys so much for tuning in jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out periodically on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. 